the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Tuesday Show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, questions about church, whatever it is, just call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. And remember, if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen. Everything else will be hands-free. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Nothing going on on Tuesday, so we can get right to some questions. The first one comes from Marion from our email inbox. Hi, Pastor Ron. My teen and I had a discussion about using Oh My God. He believes that by saying that, we are using God's name in vain. My sentence at the time was, Oh My God, thank you for all that you have done. I told him that it is vain if you say, oh, my God, in a negative connotation, as if I said, oh, my God, another flat tire or something to that extent. What are your thoughts? Marion, I I don't get really exercised over this. I, I mean, I think God knows our hearts. He understands that it's a figure of speech. Uh, and if we're not using it in a demeaning way now, I, I'm not advocating at all that this ought to be a part of our regular vocabulary. But we're humans. We have flesh. And when we get saved, all of our bad habits don't just automatically stop. I think if the Holy Spirit were convicting you, it would be different than your teenager convicting you. I think our speech ought to be seasoned with grace, um, seasoned with salt. I think our speech ought to be edifying. And, And I just think if we would use the phrase, oh my God, somehow I just don't see... God getting really exercised about that. Now, by the way, if I had a flat tire, that's exactly what I would say. Oh, my God, a flat tire. And then it would be followed by help. So I I just don't think it's that big a deal. And remember, the law was given to Israel, not to you, not to me. Uh, We live in a time of grace. Now, that certainly doesn't mean that we take advantage of grace and use that language um, but but I just think we, we've got to start speaking in a way that honors the Lord. And I think if your heart is right, um, I think God would probably overlook that. So I would tell your teenager that um, just as you're glad you're under grace, I'm sure he is too. Uh, because if that's the worst thing that comes out of your mouths, then you're doing pretty well. God understands habits. God understands our weaknesses. Uh, and I just don't think this is something that he really gets that frustrated about. Again, if the Holy Spirit's convicting you, stop using it. Hope that helps, Marion. Thank you for the question. I appreciate it. 
Here is a question that came in just today from our email inbox from Robert. Hi, Pastor Ron. I've been going to a church in which the pastor is preaching that after we're saved, we will no longer sin. The pastor backed it up with the woman on the well and the adulterous woman and a few other verses. But I read, but I read that we will always fall short of God's glory. The exhortations the pastor is giving does not sit right with me. If he's right, please clarify. If he's wrong, why would he keep saying this? I've been saved and I have fallen again and again. Does that mean I'm not saved? Thank you, Robert. God bless you for uh, asking this question because I know there's a whole bunch of guilt. Most of the time, the passage of Scripture that uh, people who talk about uh, sinless perfection we use is from First John. Um, if we walk in the light as he's in the light, uh, if we really belong to him, then we will no longer sin. But the idea there, it's a continuous present tense in the Greek. And what it means is that we won't live any lifestyle of sin. Uh, but here's the truth, Robert. We are all sinners. The Apostle Paul himself in Romans chapter 7 spoke about his own struggle with his flesh. What I want to do, I can't do. What I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, was his conclusion. So, um, uh, Robert, you're right. He's wrong. Now, the, the problem with this is much deeper. If you go to a church and this is what the pastor's teaching, then you're in a church It's heretical. So you need to go to a different church, period. This is not a minor thing. This is a very big deal. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Paul writes to the church at Rome. And that, too, is in the continuous present tense, which means that we're going to continue to sin continually. And when we sin, again, back to First John, we have an advocate with the Lord. And if we confess our sins, he will be faithful to cleanse us, uh, to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So this this idea that we could ever get to a place where we are sinless uh, is um, um, heretical. Um, to give your pastor the benefit of the doubt, he's probably been convinced by someone. Uh, the truth is that's just wrong. But but I, I'm I'm equally concerned with the fact that he would use as a proof text the woman at the well or the woman who caught was caught in the act of adultery. Uh, when Jesus said, go and sin no more, that doesn't mean they were capable because they kept sinning. There's another one, the, the man uh, cleansed at the pool of Bethesda. Now, now uh, stop sinning or something else will, worse will happen to you. But as long as we're in these human bodies, these flesh and blood bodies, Robert, we're going to sin. We don't want to. And the idea is that we need to hate our sin. And when we sin, we need to really quickly repent. But the idea that we can be sinless. Um, um, it takes Texas, Robert. This is a, uh, a a false doctrine that's become pretty popular in Texas. Uh, there is a guy, and his name escapes me for the moment, but out of North Texas, who's been teaching this for a long time. And he's got quite a lot of people who are following him. I had a, a man in the church not long ago, um, maybe last year, uh, or maybe just before COVID, um, when um, um, he said, Pastor Ron, you said something that, that that when we sin, but if we're Christians, we shouldn't sin anymore. And I said, so how's that going for you? And he goes, well, I don't sin anymore. And and instantly, you can you can hear the hiss of the enemy. So yes, we sin Robert, you're right. This is discernment. It's not sitting with well with you because you have the Holy Spirit in you, uh, and you need desperately to find another church. So, Robert, thank you for the question. I hope that helps. Let's go to line one. We've got Ray on line one from San Antonio. Ray, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Um, you started off with something that just is, it just, raises the hair off the back of my neck. Um, <laughs> and I don't know if I'm completely wrong and out of phase with with that, but the OMG business, when, when I have something going on, and good or bad, I, I leave off the oh my, and I just am thankful. And uh, it, it's just I have to turn the television to a different channel or mute it or something 
every time this particular commercial comes on and, and that phrase is repeated twice, and I think it's just a commercialized thing, and, I, and I'm really disgusted that uh, Christians and, and others are, are just, you know, censured for, for saying the wrong, not being politically correct, you know, <laughs> swapping genders and all of that, you know, it just is so ridiculous, but it really irks me, and, and I don't know how to get over it, but... You know, if I if I had a gun, I'd probably shoot the TV. But that would be stupid. And that I'm would get expensive, been, wouldn't I'm it? Not, I've never not been accused of that. But uh, <laughs> uh, I, I wonder if you could help me get past that little little glitch in the uh, you know the the yeah. situation we're in. Maybe you can, Ray. Thank on, you on the radio. Okay, my friend, thank you very, very much. You know, um, I'll tell you what Paula says when, when people say stuff like that. She goes, they're accountable. And, and that's a good thing. I think, I think the acknowledgement with our lips that there is a God, even from people who claim there is no God, uh, I think that's just God sort of propping up and saying, see, everybody knows instinctively there's a God. Now, I want to be clear about one thing, Ray. Maybe I wasn't clear uh, when I addressed the question at the top of the show. Um, um, uh, to take God's name in vain, to, to accompany it with a curse word, I think is one of the worst things ever. And like you, I, I won't watch a show anymore. I can't turn it on anymore. Uh, Paul and I have left movies. So uh, I'm not at all in favor of taking God's name lightly. However... The fact that somebody who doesn't believe in God, somebody who's not a follower of Jesus Christ, would use the phrase God or oh my God or even in a cursing sense is, is, um, is I think, just God sort of saying, look, everybody knows and everybody's without excuse on the day of judgment. And so what I would do if I were you and you got it affected you to the point where you were angry or you had a hard time extending grace to people, is I, I would say, Lord, I'd use that as an opportunity to pray for them. Lord, they, they know, don't know what they're saying. Jesus said, forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they're saying. We could say the same thing. God, he doesn't know you. And yet he cavalierly, or they cavalierly, use that phrase. So God, would you make your presence real to them? And I think when we're praying for people, Ray, from a pure heart, I think the result will be that the Holy Spirit will sort of take over and we won't be susceptible to anger or sinning in our anger. And certainly the one thing that we don't want to get, and this is really hard, Ray, and I understand it, not just for you or just for me, but for everybody. When people who irritate us um, use this kind of language, I think we forget sometimes in our anger, we forget sometimes that God loves them, that he died for their sins. And I actively will go through the process of reminding myself, God, this person needs to know you. And you love them, and so my responsibility is to love them. And by loving them, I'm not saying accepting their behavior, but understanding that this is just coming from an empty heart, a a, a lost man or a lost woman, and uh, again, I think God sort of turns the tables on them and holds them accountable when they say something like that. Ray, thank you for that. I appreciate it very, very much. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here is uh, Marisol from our email inbox. Hi, Pastor Ron. My understanding in Genesis 3.16 is that a curse of the woman is them wanting to have dominion or control over their husband, or the husband will have rule over her and be a constant battle. And woman will have childbearing pain while having the baby. Does that include the sickness prior to the baby being delivered? Please elaborate and clarify. Thank you. Marisol, I I think probably you're right. I'm certain that um, um, childbirth was, was, was intended by God to be easy. Uh, otherwise, he wouldn't have mentioned it. I think. I think, uh, had had they not fallen, babies would have happened quickly. I don't think the gestation period would have been nearly as long as as it currently is. Uh, I think it would have been something that would have been um, uh, easy and and a complete and utter joy. Um, but 
mankind, Adam, messed that up. And so uh, I would I would guess that yes, the 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 morning sickness uh, that women experience, um, and and I know a lot of women who experience it all day long. So um, I I would imagine that too is part of the curse. And when they start pushing and the labor pains begin to come. I think there's a whole lot of women who are cursing because of the curse as a result. Let's talk about Genesis uh, 3 for a moment. Um, you're, you're right in saying that, that, that the, one of the effects of the curse is that men will be in headship or they will rule over their wives, but the desire of the wife will be to rule over her husband. So that's a constant battle that goes on. Paul has talked about this a lot on our Thursday show. Um, the, the curse, it's a curse. It's not supposed to be something that we enjoy. It's something that we have to battle every single day. And Marisol, the way to, to battle is is simply to, to, to die to self. Um, when When the Bible says that we're to submit to the leadership of our husbands and we don't want to do it, the only way we can do that is to be full of the Holy Spirit. And then we say, Jesus, uh, thy will, not my will be done. The outworking of that is I have to say no to me so I can say yes to you. And the way we do that is by faith in Jesus Christ. We're never told to submit to our husband's leadership because he's smarter, more spiritual, or makes better decisions. We're told to do it, and that's a part of the curse. Our flesh hates it, just like we hate paying taxes. We hate uh, submitting to the to our leaders, uh, especially those that we disagree with. But we do it for Jesus. And in this particular case, the wife does it for the husband. And the curse, it wouldn't be a curse if God said, okay, you're going to submit to your husband and you're going to like it. But no, it's a result of the fall. And every sin has one answer. After the fall, the cross of Jesus Christ. So we die to self. And we do it for Jesus. Good question, Marisol. Thank you very, very much for the question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Paul says, uh, Pastor Ron, how can we use the Lord's Prayer to help our prayer life? I mentioned this in the study, or in the, in the show yesterday, I think. Uh, and I had a call last week also. Um, Paul, the Lord's Prayer, t- teaching it actually, um, enhanced my prayer life immeasurably. Um, and so um, um, I'll just give you a few examples. I, I won't go through the whole Lord's Prayer simply because that would take too long. But the idea is uh, we pray that as an outline. And then the Holy Spirit sort of fills in between the lines. When we say, our Father, which art in heaven. Uh, the first thing, as, 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 as the, the man or the woman doing the praying, is you've got to say, okay, can I really and legitimately say our Father? Is he my Father? Have I been adopted into the family? Am I chosen by God? And truly, then we can say our Father. We do that uh, with one heart. Now, here's another application, Paul, just as an example. Let's say that you and your wife are having a difficult time. Um, maybe there's a lot of tension, a lot of arguing. Maybe there's some anger. Maybe you're disappointed in her or she's disappointed in you. Um, your prayers are hindered. Because together as one flesh, you can't say our Father because you're divided. So that's just an example. Um, um the fact that he is in heaven. Uh, I, I often like to begin my prayers with just acknowledging the fact that God is in heaven. God, um, you're over all. You hear these prayers. And that he's in heaven means that he is enthroned above the judgment. Psalm 29 says the same thing. And so we can we can give God honor and glory. We can worship him. For being the God above all things, that means you've got my life in your hands. And then we can go through all of the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be thy name, it's holy. We're worshiping him. Uh, Give us this day our daily bread. That's saying in, in, in the course of prayer, Lord, I'm content with what you have for me. Um, 
Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So you can do those kinds of things. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Paul there were praying for two things. Lord, come quickly. But when we say thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, then we can offer our bodies. Lord, use me. Thy will be done in me and my life today. So when you start, uh, forgive me as I forgive others. We've got to be able to say that. And and that model that Jesus gives us pretty much takes our life and turns it inside out. And the Holy Spirit, I promise you, will uh, give you some direction and some correction uh, whenever necessary. So, Paul, that's just a, a, a very quick um, concept of how, in fact, uh, that can be used. But uh, it, it radically changed my prayer life. I mean, it, it was amazing. And uh, I would, I highly recommend it. It's not something that we should pray every day, that we should pray in repetition. Um, but what we do is we simply say, Lord, thy will be done. Here's an anonymous question from our email inbox. Hi, Pastor Ron. I'm catching up on the book of Daniel. Uh, what an amazing teaching you did on the Ten Elements of Prayer. Oh, thank you, Anonymous. That was uh, a week ago, I think. Uh, my wife and I heard it, and she had a follow-up question. You mentioned in one of the elements, own the sin and accept the consequences of the sin. Does this mean we will only bear the consequences of sin after becoming a believer in the Lord or both before and after Jesus? I believe the answer is both. Please share your wisdom. Thank you. Anonymous, I agree with you. No, uh, consequences of sin um, come to, to believers and unbelievers alike. Now remember, when we're talking about the ten elements of effective prayer, as I did in Daniel chapter 9, uh, it wasn't last Wednesday, it was the Wednesday before. Uh, and by for, for all of you in the audience, I, I really recommend that. There's a lot of wonderful fruit in that Bible study. It's from Daniel chapter 9, the next to the last study in in the chapter, calvarysa.com. But but when we're talking about the, the, the ten elements of effective prayer, uh, and not if we're talking to believers. Um, we don't expect unbelievers to pray. Um, um, when I say that, that one of those elements is to own the sin, accept the consequences of sin, we haven't really owned the sin if we're unwilling to accept the consequences. And you know, when somebody does something wrong and we say, oh God, I'm so sorry. But then when the consequences start to come, we get mad at God. Why aren't you delivering the consequences? That's not owning the sin. Sin does have consequences, and what we do is we bear them. We allow the Lord to bear them with us, but we, we, we have to accept personal responsibility. And unless we're willing to do that, then we're, we're frankly, we're not owning responsibility for our sin at all. If a husband cheats on a wife or a wife cheats on a husband, um, you know, you can say, oh, I'm really sorry, but you did this or you did that. I wouldn't have done it if you hadn't done that. That's not accepting responsibility. And, of course, if that's the way we're trying to pray, then um, our prayers won't be heard because our prayers certainly aren't in the will of God. So uh, I think we'll bear consequences of sin, whether we're believers or unbelievers. It's just one of the things that we're going to have to deal with as a result of, of our failure. Hope that makes any some sense. Thank you very much. I appreciate that you enjoyed the Bible study. Here is a question from Donald. He says, do pets go to heaven? Now, Donald, I'm glad I got this question right now because there's just a little more than a minute left in the first half of the program. Pets do not go to heaven. I feel like such a Scrooge when I say that, Donald. But no, pets don't go to heaven. Pets aren't made in the image of God. They don't live forever uh, as we will live forever. Uh, pets are given by God for our enjoyment. And, and those pets, as wonderful as they are, um, they're just a gift from God for this life. I, I don't understand why this is always so controversial and that people get really upset with me when I say this. But in heaven, we won't need a pet. We've got Jesus. So no, pets don't go to heaven. Uh, if you explain to your children, Donald, and they're the ones whose hearts are hurting over the loss of a pet, 
is simply let him know that God loved you so much that he gave you this pet as his special gift because he wanted you to know how much he loved you and this this dog loved you no matter what. I mean, metaphorically, dogs especially are a picture of the unconditional love of God. Doesn't matter what's going on in your life, doesn't matter whether you've done good or bad, they look at you, they smile, their tails wag, and they just want to sit with you and be stroked. So, just say, this is God who loves you so much, he gave you this pet as his gift, just to be sure that you knew how much he loved you. But no, Donald, pets do not go to heaven. No matter how emotional we get, uh, heaven is for those of us who are created in the image of God. That's you and me, and we're going to live somewhere forever. Donald, good question. Thank you. We've got 30 minutes left in the program today, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the word to stand on for life. We will be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our program. We'd love your live calls and questions. 340-9585 is our main number. Here's a question from Nestora uh, from our email inbox. Uh, is the gift of prophecy for today... As I read and understand how prophecy was being used in the Old Testament, it was to declare a message from God to a group of people, mainly Israel. Whenever I see prophecy given to one person, it was to interpret a dream or a written message as in Daniel. Let me add, Nestor, before we, we go on with the rest of the question. Uh, the idea of prophecy uh, in the Old Testament was most often, I think, used as a warning. Uh, certainly the prophecies to Daniel are a warning about things to come. Um, the, the prophecies of all of the Old Testament prophets that we're familiar with, they were warnings. Um, God sees what you're doing. If you don't stop, there's going to be judgment. And and like always, the, the, the people decided which prophecies they would listen to. Uh, and, and most of the time they didn't. They killed the prophets. Jesus said, you who killed the prophets. Uh, Jesus told parables about that. And and so the, the idea with, with the, the, the prophet of the Old Testament is that they were a spokesman for God um, for 400 years, you'll remember, between the Testaments, between the close of Malachi and, and the, the appearance of John the Baptist. For 400 years, there was no prophet. Hebrews 1.1 begins with, in the, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Many of those prophets' lives were dramatic and they, they had all kinds of persecution because people didn't like the messages. Jeremiah is a, a good example. Ezekiel, uh, another example. So, um, prophets in the Old Testament were, were primarily to warn uh, Jonah was sent to to Nineveh, unbelievers, and and warned them that that if they don't repent, judgment was going to come. and And his message, of course, was effective. Okay, let me finish reading his question, and we'll get to the what I think is the core of this. In First Corinthians thirteen eight, it says that the gifts will eventually go away, but ultimately cease when we're face to face with Jesus, because we won't need them at that point. Seems that prophecy was still active in 50 AD when Paul addressed it to Corinth and ending in Revelation in 90 AD when John received the final message from Jesus to us all. I don't see the benefit for individual prophecy when Jesus has given us all his word and his final prophecy. Um, Nestor, I think you're, you're in, in, in going in the right direction. I think I can make a distinction that will help clear this up. 
when I said in Hebrews 1, what says, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers uh, through the prophets at various times and in, in, at, and many times in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us in son. Now, what that means is not that the gift of prophecy ceases, but that the office of prophet ceases. It's important to distinguish the gift from the office. Now, 1 Corinthians 13 in the New Testament clearly states that the gift of prophecy still functions, but it's different. It's, it's a gift that edifies and strengthens the church. Now, let me give you an example. We know that Philip's four daughters were prophetesses, but, but they were uttering the truth of God's word. They, they were prophets, prophetesses, and, and they were speaking for God. Remember, they didn't have the Bible then. And you got these thousands of people being saved, and they have no direction. And so the New Testament had prophets. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were prophets. Uh, the Apostle Paul, certainly Peter. All of the apostles were prophets. Agabus was a prophet. So in 50 AD and later in 90, and actually I think 95 AD is when John received the message of the Revelation, closer to that than 90 AD, there were still prophets because without a Bible, they needed it. And so the gifts eventually fade away, the, but, but, but the gift of prophecy functioned um, up until uh, the, not, not only the early church, but functions to this day. What the gift of prophecy is not is the foretelling of God's word. When Daniel, and I've got uh, Daniel, uh, we're, we're in part of the most complicated portion of, of Scripture anywhere. When we get to chapters 11, 12, I'm going to be doing chapter 10 tomorrow night. Um, so complicated, so detailed. But it was Daniel telling the future, forth-telling. The gift of prophecy is foretelling. Telling, not or not foretelling, but forth telling. So um, I, I hope I, I said that right the first time. Um, the, the prophet spoke the word of God. The gift of prophecy is the word of God as we understand it in our, our churches. We teach the Bible now. When I'm teaching the Bible, uh, Nestor, I'm teaching the Bible. I'm exercising the the gift of prophecy. It's a gift of teaching, but it's also a gift of prophecy because what happens is God takes his, 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 his word and makes it alive. And I'll be teaching something out of the Bible and people will come up after the message and say, boy, Pastor Ron, you were speaking right to me or I was, I've been praying about an answer to this question and God gave it to me. The same thing happens sometimes in our afterglows here at Calvary Chapel when someone will stand up and say, I think I have a word from the Lord. And then, then they, they for forth tell rather than foretell the word of God. They're not saying, thus saith the Lord, here's a prediction. They're just simply with a Bible verse or with an exhortation. They're edifying and strengthening the body. So very clearly, there are no more prophets today, but the gift of prophecy still exists. And having the gift of prophecy or exercising the gift of prophecy, Nestor, does not make one a prophet or a prophetess. So I hope that makes sense to you. And I think basically that's the conclusion that you came to. But make the, the distinction that I think should make this really clear between being a prophet, having the office, Ephesians chapter 2, makes it clear that there are no prophets today. But the gift of prophecy, that's the the, the, the foretelling of God's word, and it's living and active, and it speaks to people where they are. Um, it strengthens, it edifies, it exhorts, and that gift is still used in the church today. That gift has not ceased, however, the office of prophet has. Thank you, Nestor. I appreciate it very, very much. Let's go to line one and talk with Dave from Universal City. Dave, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron. How you doing? I'm doing really well, Dave. Thanks for calling. Okay. Hey, I'm in the car, so I didn't know if you could hear me or not. I had to, I was listening to Smokey Robinson. I had to turn it down. <laughs> I have a couple <laughs> questions about <laughs> little Motown there. 
Yeah. A couple of questions about fallen angels. Okay. Okay, so I'm going to reference Second uh, Peter chapter two, verse four, where in the New King uh, New King James it says uh, uh, talks about God not sparing the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. And then again, in Jude, I think verse 6 references something very similar to what Peter was talking about. And then I'm just wondering, because I know that uh, we read about Lucifer, Satan, and the the fallen angels, and we know that Satan has is is free to roam, has freedom to maneuver, so to speak. And then, so I'm just wondering about the difference between the the what they're talking about the fallen angels who are in chains, uh, having been delivered, uh, reserved for judgment. And I'm wondering if that has anything to do with going back to Genesis chapter six. I'm not going back and forth too much. Where Nope. Uh, the Bible says, you know, they talk about the uh, men beginning to multiply, daughters were born, and then the sons of God, which I assume are, are angels, saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves. And and that was interesting because I'm that I'm assuming then that obviously they had the capacity to reproduce, and then in verse 4 of Genesis chapter 6, it references specifically, there were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. And then it goes on to talk about how the Lord was sorry had made man, and uh, and he talked about destroying man, and are these, are these, are these the angels that Peter and referencing or talking about in Peter and Second uh, Peter and, and Jude are these the same angels? Yeah, David. I think they're. You know, Dave. I didn't hear a word you said after you said Smokey Robinson. So um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, I got your question. But Motown is really living. So um, we're, we're we're disclosing our age here. Um, yeah, Dave. Let me let me deal with this um, first and foremost. Um, there are different levels, different classifications, different power levels of angels in heaven, both good angels and bad bad angels. Uh, in Genesis chapter 6, what you described when the sons of daughters, or sons of God, always in the Old Testament, a reference to angels, um, the sons of God went into the daughters of men and took them for their own. And, and, and with all my heart, I believe this was the devil's attempt to so pollute the human uh, line that, that the Messiah could never have possibly come. And I think that's the only explanation that explains God's reaction um, in, in the rest of Genesis 6 with the flood. Um, you know, people say, no, these were the sons of Seth. Uh, and, and obviously, Genesis 6 is a disputed passage uh, because there are people who just will not accept the fact that angels could procreate with uh, with humans. Um, and, and while we know that we angels don't marry in heaven, we know that because Jesus said we'll be like the angels in heaven in that sense, evidently there was a, a, a class of angel that was so fierce and so incorrigible that um, that that they simply weren't going to obey, and God, at that time, limited them from being able to do that. Now, first of all, He destroyed all the people on the earth that were inhabited, all of the offspring, the giants that were in the land, the men of renown. He destroyed them all in the flood, and He started all over with Noah and his family. Um, that doesn't mean they're connected to the giants that were appeared later. They're, that's just the DNA pool and tall people create tall people, that kind of thing. But in this particular case, I think it, it, God just sort of drew the line. He's still in charge of the angelic world. And um, in Peter's passage in Second Peter chapter 2, it says, If God did not spare the angels what they sin, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. And then when you put Jude's, 
uh, in verse 6 of his little letter, it says, these are the angels that did not keep their first estate. Now, the first estate can be one of two things, or it can be both things. The first, it can be um, they, 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 they rebelled against God. Uh, they, they were in the presence of God. They were given great power by God. Uh, the second part is that, that they didn't keep their first estate um, in, in terms of obedience when their desire was to go into women and, uh, and, and try to put the devil's scheme into play. I think what we've got here is God simply saying there are some angels that are so powerful and so awful that the only way to control them is to lock them up. And that's what happened. Um, they were put into gloomy dungeons waiting for the day of judgment. Now, if you go into the book of Revelation, David, then what we see is we've got people who or these angels who are some of them let loose out of the abyss. They're in that hell. And they're let loose, and they're let loose at the end during the, the final judgments, the bold judgments. They're let loose on the earth, and the judgments then become the worst of all. And I think, yes, they are all connected, uh, going back to that moment. And I think personally that when the sons of God, again, always a reference to angelic beings, went into the daughters of men and took those they wanted, uh, I think that uh, that's when those angels, those really, really powerful angels, were were put into the into the the dungeons um, where they're going to be held for just the last time. One final thought on this, Dave. Um, the 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 argument that well, nowhere do we have any indication that angels can have sex with with uh, humans. Um, uh, I understand that. And, and people say, well, that's just paganism, and if you believe that, you're a pagan. But two things. First and foremost, if this was just the sons of Seth, which is usually the the fallback position to these sons of God, who were they? Well, they were the sons of Seth, the godly line. If the sons of Seth committed sexual sin, well, then God's overreaction is stunning. Would God destroy the whole world because there were humans who had sex, immoral sex? And I think the answer to that is obvious. No, God wouldn't do that. The other side of this is you've got um, in Genesis chapters 18 and 19, for the person who says, well, well angels can't have sex with, with humans. Well, in Genesis 18 and 19, the people in Sodom and Gomorrah, the men in Sodom and Gomorrah, really believed they could have sex with the destroying angels that, that were sent uh, along with Jesus. And that's what they were going to do. And and uh, Lot simply wasn't going to let that happen. And he offered his daughters. They didn't want them. You, you can't tell us what to do. But they really believed they could have sex with those men because that's what the Bible says they wanted to do. So, uh, I I believe pretty firmly, David, that that this was uh, an angelic attempt, a demonic attempt, to so pollute the human line that the Christ, the Messiah, could never have come. And I think God just started all over from scratch. He had one man in his family, and they were the ones that he started with. And, of course, that's no. Good question, Dave. Thank you very much for the call. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from anonymous from our email inbox. It seems like Christian music is beginning more like worldly music. The way some of these Christian singers worship and worship is, uh, I think, significantly in quotes here. Uh, singers worship to God at these concerts seems more secular and fulfilling their flesh. Is this a fair assessment? Uh, I think anonymous. It, it's it. The, the answer is yes and no. It's fair, and it's unfair. Now let me make the distinction here. I think in church, where church is being worshipped, when you see performances, I think that's just all flesh. But remember, you're talking about concerts. And when Christian musicians, and let me rephrase, musicians who happen to be Christians, I think when they put on a concert 
and performing is the the the, the goal, I, I think it's okay. Now I don't go to Christian concerts, so I don't know what the atmosphere is like. But the idea that we're worshiping God and we're we're dancing all over the stage, I, I think that's getting in the way of worship. Uh, but when somebody's having a concert and the crowd is full and it's exciting and music, of course, moves our emotions, I think it's okay to perform. I've actually seen, not in person, but I've seen some concerts. I, I, I watched a, a full, I think, two hours one night. Uh, this is years ago now, of a group called the Katinas. And I loved every second of it. And it was a concert. It wasn't worship. It was a concert. But these songs glorified Jesus. And I wasn't at all offended. However, if I were to go into a church and there was smoke and, and lights and and uh, worship leaders bouncing all over the stage, drawing attention to themselves, well, that's when, to me, it ceases to be worship at all. So that's my take on it, Anonymous. Again, I'm not a, a, a big music person, but I think it's important to distinguish between worship, what we call worship in church, and what we call a, a concert or a performance. And, um, uh, you know, it's the style of music shouldn't matter. If God is being worshipped, he gets all the glory. And I have been in churches, unfortunately, where um, the worship leaders uh, were were so distracting, performing, um, it just wasn't worship at all. So that's the distinction I would make. Now, let me say one other thing about style. When new styles come out, we just have to remember that God is still using people. And uh, we, we, now they've gone, they went to plant a church in Washington State, but my youth pastor here for 10 years was a rapper. Uh, his wife was a rapper, and, and uh, a lot of her music was in Spanish, and uh, and she was so very, very good. And we actually had them perform at outdoor venues that we did with, with Joy of Jesus, and the crowd loved it, and God was getting all of the glory. So God is using young people now, just like he used young hippies back in the Jesus movement days. Um, God's always moving in his people. He's always giving gifts to his people. And I think when you see a, you hear a style of music that you don't like, don't disqualify that as worship. More look to the attitude or the heart of worship. There's a song, and I don't know who the singers are, but we do it here occasionally. We haven't done it in a long time, but I'm coming back to the heart of worship. And that song, I think, was significant because we've made worship um, a business. And that's not what worship is supposed to be. Worship is supposed to cost. My producer just said that's Matt Redman. Um, we're coming back to the heart of worship. And, and, and that's what I think we need to do. Let me also say this, Anonymous. The one thing I insist on, uh, I do not micromanage our worship ministry here. Praise the Lord, I don't have to, because my worship pastor is the best in the world. I mean, his heart is better than his music, and his music is awesome. But his heart is better. And when they're on stage and they're worshiping God, I don't have to worry about their heart. I don't have to worry about the choice of songs. Uh, all I have to do is just enjoy and worship what God is doing. God is always using people. And he will use them. And, and worship, the style of worship is going to continue to evolve. But remember, when you go to a concert, it's not the same standard. Thank you for the question. I hope that is um, clear enough. Three four zero ninety five eighty. Well, we've only got two minutes now, so I don't want to do that. Um, here's a, an anonymous one from our mobile app. Hi, Pastor. Is it okay for Christians to list, listen to secular music or dress secularly? Now, I don't know what dress secularly is. I dress secularly every day. Right now, I'm wearing sweatpants and, a, and an Adidas T-shirt 
in some some Adidas shoes. Uh, that's secular dress. So yeah, it's it's perfectly okay to dress secularly. Now, the first question, secular music, of course it's okay. Now, we don't want to listen to music that dishonors God. Um, we go to the gym and, and they've got some of the nastiest music going uh, and I don't want to listen to that. I don't want to listen to that. But of course it's okay for Christians to listen to secular music. Uh, Dave, who called just a, a minute ago, said he's been listening to Smokey Robinson. I love Motown. I grew up in that era. It reminds me of wonderful times in my life. Um, Paul and I were watching a show last night, and, and one of the singers on the on this this contest uh, sang um, a Natalie Cole, Nat King Cole song, uh, Inseparable. And, and that's just really good music. It's very secular, but it's wonderful music. And God, God has given people these wonderful gifts, and they've been such a blessing. A blessing. Another singer on that show tried to do a Whitney Houston song, and nobody should try to do that because there's only one Whitney Houston. But uh, I mean, that music is wonderful music, and God has given that gift to the world uh, through these people. And um, so, of course, it's okay to listen to secular music. If you enjoy it, you're free to partake. And don't worry at all about what anybody else says or thinks. Again, make sure it's not ungodly music. But if it's good music, yeah, we can listen to it. It makes me want to listen to a Karen Carpenter song right now. Hey, thanks for the questions today. Appreciate uh, We're getting a lot of questions uh, from our app and from our email line. We're grateful. Hey, thanks for tuning in. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.